You're listening to Let's Talk Creation with Todd Wood and Paul Garner, the creation show where we learn, grow, and worship. Well, welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. Well, this is our uh, Christmas episode. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, Paul. Happy Christmas to you, too. Yep. Um, unlike uh, so so unlike Thanksgiving, uh, both of our countries actually uh, celebrate Christmas. Um, so thanks for That's indulging right. us. Thanks for indulging us on our Thanksgiving holiday. Then <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. So um, so we've had. Uh, I I do want to remind everyone before we get going here to um, like this episode right now. Just do it. Um, if you're listening on something other than YouTube, then go ahead and uh, leave us a review. Make a recommendation, tell your friends, whatever you can do to help us um, expand our reach. We really appreciate that. That helps us to uh, continue to produce this podcast. And uh, if you really like it, then, then we, could, we would really appreciate your support. And we should also mention, Paul, we are in uh, fundraising time here. We're coming down to the wire, uh, trying to raise um, uh, enough money to support the podcast for the next year. Um, and yeah, so remember, uh, we calculated this uh, recently. It was about $600 per episode, which works out to about $17,000 every year. And um, so if you want to sponsor an episode, you can just give us 600 bucks, and we will consider whatever topic you'd like us to do. Maybe we might want to negotiate that. But um, last year we did, uh, this year I should say, 2023, we did two sponsored episodes. And we really appreciate uh, that level of support. Uh, but you could also go uh, to either one of our websites um, and find out how to become a regular supporter of our ministries. And we would very much appreciate your sponsorship. So that's letstalkcreation.org. That will give you a link to uh, both of our ministries and how you can make contributions. For uh, Core Academy in the U.S., it's coresci.org slash donate. That'll take you direct, directly there, and you can make a contribution online. And Biblical Creation Trust, how would we do that, Paul? It's biblicalcreationtrust.org, and there's a link to our giving page, and all of the information is there. All right, fantastic. All right, back to Christmas episodes then. Onward and upward. Um, we've done a couple of Christmas episodes in the past. Paul, this is our third Christmas episode. Can you believe that? It's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Time we, flies. We just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Yeah. So, yeah. We so we run out of topics yet, have we? No, we, we haven't. We've still got loads, of, we've got loads of things lined up for next year. So. We have ideas, and then people say, hey, have you thought about this idea? And I think, oh, yeah, yeah. we should probably do that, too. So our list, we literally have enough episodes on our list of dream episodes to cover at least another year of this. So, yeah. Plenty of ideas. So, yeah. So yeah. our first Christmas episode, we had um, Art Chadwick come in and talk about his dinosaur digging, which was a lot of fun. Uh, last year, we had Bob Hill, uh, who's an astronomer. Yep. He came by and talked about creation astronomy issues. And uh, we talked briefly about the, the, uh, the identity or the reality of the Christmas star. Um, this uh -huh. year, we're going to do something just slightly different. Uh, this year, we actually have a very common uh, question that people pose to us. Um, now, you've, you've heard 
viewer question episodes in the past. We throw those in every now and then because people keep posting questions on our, on our YouTube and, <laughs> and social media and email and so forth, which we appreciate. Please keep that up. Um, but yeah, so we have this one persistent question that we thought, you know, that would make a really interesting Christmas episode. And what is that question, Paul? Well, the question is, what do you recommend that I should read? Ah, um, yeah. You know, book recommendations. Yeah. So yeah, this is kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Because um, I think when people ask you, you know, what what should I be reading? I think what they're really wanting to know is what books or magazines or websites do you consider to be trustworthy? Um, yeah. And that's not always a, an easy question to answer for for a whole host of reasons and um and i know that you agree with me that you know we really ought to be reading beyond just the authors that we agree with um you know if we really want to be well informed as creationists then we we need to be reading outside of our comfort zone sometimes yeah. and reading more than just creationist authors yeah i i i, I completely agree and and the whole issue of trust is is a really tricky issue as well um, but honestly, I would take the recommended reading question over the, um, the more pointed is so-and-so a generally reliable source. <laughs> I hate that. Yes. Um, and, and it's because it's not yeah. because I think, you know, people are unreliable. It's because, yeah. you know, if you go to one of these websites, you go to answers to Genesis or creation mysteries, there are thousands of articles. How can I possibly tell you? <laughs> oh yeah. You can trust that website. Um, but beyond that, I don't want you, my audience member, I don't want you to think I'm going to put my trust in the things that so-and-so says. Yeah. I want you to be a careful and critical thinker all the time, always comparing, okay, this is the claim that I see. What does the Bible say? And then, you know, what? What is what is the basis of this of this claim? Where where is this person coming up with this? You know what physical evidence, what textual evidence? You know what what reasoning is going on? I want you to be a critical consumer of information, um, and so that's I think a lot of what is motivated. Let's talk creation. It's why we're weird. <laughs> people 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 yeah. comment on how unusual we are. Um, and and I and I think a lot of that is because we are all about you know modeling to you how to think and how to how to how to work through the kinds of questions that come up in the in the world of of creationism. And so, yeah, yeah this is a tricky this is a tricky this is a tricky question. Um. So uh, so the, this recommended reading thing here. What we're going to do in this episode, we've decided, is we're just going to go back and forth uh, for the next roughly hour or so, and we are going to describe books that we think an informed creationist uh, ought to read. Now, not all of these books are creationist books. We'll warn you that right up front. Um, but we think you should read them um, for your own personal intellectual development, whatever. Uh, we think there's valuable stuff in this as a whole, even while you may look, may read it and say, okay, well, I don't agree with this author's worldview or whatever, but I can at least appreciate the flow of what he's arguing or the data that he's presenting and so forth. 
And yeah, it's 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 December. It's the Christmas week. Uh, these make dandy stocking stuffers or whatever. If you've got a <laughs> if you've got a a budding young creationist in your household um, with an eager mind and who loves to read, here you go. Here's here are uh, a bunch of um, uh, suggested uh, books that you might want to consider as uh, Christmas yeah. gifts. And some of them you can yeah. get really quickly from Amazon. I don't know if you can still get Amazon to deliver before Christmas. Um, but a few of these are probably going to be harder maybe for next Christmas. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, the theme of this is Christmas gifts and what we think you could read. So there you go. Yeah. And and other book suppliers are available. We're, we're, you know, right. We're not saying you have to use Amazon. <laughs> we're, we're not we're not sponsored um, by Amazon. No. Um, yeah. So. And there are there are loads of books we could have talked about, and it was oh, yeah. really quite difficult to kind of whittle this list our lists down to yes. just the few that we're going to talk about this time. So yes. we may well come back to this and do another episode like this. Right. Um, now, before we get into our our lists, um, I think we should talk about a few books that will not be on our list. Mm. Um, not because we don't think they're important, but because we think they're so important, we're just assuming you're going to be reading them anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah so right. i i'm thinking of books like um darwin's origin of species yeah. or wickham and morris's the genesis flood you know these kinds of seminal books that you know all every well-informed creationist ought to be reading yeah um we're not going to talk about those we're going to yeah. talk about maybe some other books that maybe you're less familiar with exactly so so i would put in that category as well the sort of the seminal id books um like Bill Dembski's Design Inference, which is a very hugely influential and frankly quite clever treatment of of how we recognize his design. Um, Phil Johnson's Darwin on Trial, um, Mike Behe's Darwin's Black Box. These are all things, you know, yeah, like you say, really obvious things that you should have been reading. If you want to read The Other Side, if you want to read Anti-Creationism, I think the classic one of there is is uh, Dawkins' um, inf- infamous, notorious blind watchmaker. Um, I'm not a fan, but, you know, go for it if that's uh, what you're looking for. If you want to be really re- well-rounded, um, yeah, be careful, and, and, and you could read that one. So what we're going to do, <laughs> yeah, like Paul said, we, we had a very hard time narrowing this down. Um, I struggled very hard to decide what was going on my my list but uh we're each going to do five books and we're going to talk and try to explain why we think these books are important obviously you're going to have you listeners and audience members are going to have your own uh list of really influential books we'd love to hear those feel free to email us podcast at corsi.org or leave a comment on our social media accounts, or maybe on our YouTube video. Um, yeah, let us know what really important books you think a creationist ought to read, because then maybe we we could include that in, you know, round two of this whenever that shows up. So yeah, and and I would mention also this is going to not be in any real order. Um, this is not a top ten list or a top five list or anything like that. We just <laughs> We just pick some books. Here they are. And yeah. So, Paul, how about you start us off? What is your what is one of the books okay. that you chose for 
reading recommendations? Sure. So the first book that I'm going to recommend is uh, not a creationist book. It is this book, uh, Wonderful Life by Stephen Jay Gould. Okay. Uh, now, Stephen Jay Gould, um, for those who are not familiar with him, was uh, one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists. Uh, he's perhaps best known for his theory of punctuated equilibrium, which he developed with uh, his colleague Niles Eldridge mm -hmm. back in the early 70s. Um, he spent most of his career teaching at Harvard, and um, he died some years ago, died in 2002. Uh, but during his career, um, Gould was a prolific author. Uh, he wrote uh, loads and loads of popular science articles and books, as well as his more um, academic works. And one of the books uh, that was one of his sort of most successful books was, was Wonderful Life, published in 1989. It, it, I think it made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, the book concerns uh, the animals of the Burgess Shale, which is a middle Cambrian rock unit uh, up in the Canadian Rockies, and it's famous for its remarkable fossil preservation. Uh, the Burgess Shale animals are a very diverse assemblage of animals, including lots of arthropods, and they're preserved with um, absolutely incredible anatomical detail including detail of the soft parts of the animals, which are usually not preserved in, in the fossil records. So you have to have kind of exceptional conditions to preserve the soft parts. And Gould sort of tells the story of how the Burgess Shale uh, was discovered. It was first discovered by a paleontologist called Charles Walcott um, back in 1909 during some field work. And uh, he, he spent the next several years going back to the site collecting tens of thousands of fossil specimens and he spent the whole of the rest of his career um, describing these fossil animals and trying to sort of fit them into um, modern groups uh, right. sort of living living groups um, and what Gould um, argues in Wonderful Life is that actually these Burgess Shale animals were much more diverse and bizarre than Walcott had imagined uh consider for example that there's a there's a creature called opabinia from the burgess yes. shale which is this yeah. really weird thing with sort of five eyes and this sort of um what looks like a trunk or a snout yep. um like a vacuum cleaner hose yes. uh really weird looking thing uh, another one is wewaxia yep that looks like a kind of scaly spiny potato <laughs> and yes. uh, there are other Burgess Shale animals that are so weird that, you know, scientists weren't even sure which way up they should be reconstructed. Yes. You know, what what was top, what was bottom, right. what was front, what was back. Um, so, you know, kind of a weird assemblage of, of animals. Um, one of my favourite parts of the book uh, were the chapters where Gould sort of describes how the details of the anatomy of these remarkable animals was painstakingly extracted from the rocks. And you would think that that would be kind of boring, tedious, you know, detail, all of this anatomical detail. But actually, the way that Gould writes it, I think it's beautifully written. Um, it's, it's gripping to read. It's like a kind of detective story. 
and uh, it really sort of brings to life the, the care and the, the the precision and the labor that went into you know understanding these animals and it, it it kind of brings to life the joy the excitement of scientific discovery so he's a very skilled science communicator uh, you know in that respect and one of the other uh, things about Gould's book is that it it really helped to spark um, a debate that still runs on about the nature of evolutionary history. So uh, Gould sort of raises this question about the role of contingency in the history of life. Uh, so what what he says is that you know the, when you look at all of these Burgess Shale animals, they were so diverse in body form, much more diverse he argues, than uh, the animals that we see alive today. There's a greater range of disparity between these different body forms. And many of them are not represented by modern animals, so they haven't left any modern descendants. Uh, many of them have become extinct. Uh, and he, he kind of says which ones became extinct and which ones survived isn't obviously um, a result of how well adapted they were, but much more a case of of luck you know evolutionary history is full of these sort of events these contingent events um and uh you know the the, the outcomes the evolutionary outcomes are very dependent on this precise sequence of small events and if any of those events were different then actually things wouldn't have turned out the way they did and so he argues that you know if you were able to go back and if you like rewind the tape of the history of life and run it again, um, the outcome would be different. Um, maybe we'd end up with a world that, where the descendants of Opabinia were the <laughs> ones that kind of came to dominate, um, you know, the, the planet rather than the the, um, the the animal that became ancestral to the vertebrates. Yeah. So that's kind of his his thesis, and. Um, Kurt Wise, uh, we're going to come on to Kurt Wise because I'm going to talk about one of his books as well. But Kurt w was a student of Gould's, uh, but a creationist. And Kurt, when he reviewed Wonderful Life, pointed out that this book really follows the logic of Gould's evolutionary thinking to, to its sort of ultimate conclusion. That really mankind, you know, humanity is nothing more than an afterthought in right. evolutionary history. It's it's just one of these contingent outcomes. And, you know, things if you rewound the tape of life and you did it a million times, you know, humanity wouldn't wouldn't come about. Um, humanity wouldn't be the result. And I think if you think about that, that's that's quite a disturbing yeah. conclusion. But that would that was kind of the logical sort of consequence of how Gould was thinking. Now, I have to say that there have been other uh, evolutionary biologists who've sort of pushed back against some of Gould's conclusions, who've argued that perhaps the Burgess Shale animals weren't quite as weird as Gould thought. Um, Simon Conway Morris, a paleobiologist at Cambridge, who is a, a theist. He's unlike Gould, who was an atheist. Um, Conway Morris is a theist. Um, and he wrote this book, Crucible of Creation. Uh, in 1998, his own account of the Burgess Shale uh, animals. And he argues that contrary to Gould, evolution is much more constrained. Um, convergence, in other words, the, the independent evolution of the same traits multiple times is a prevalent phenomenon in the history of life. 
And so he kind of argues, actually, if you reran the tape of life, you might end up with a story that turned out roughly similar to what we, you know, to what we ended up with, even if the the parts were being played by different actors, if you like. So, um, so that was kind of Conway Morris's sort of pushback. Now, I don't know. I don't know how much comfort we can derive from a Christian perspective to be reassured that you know, if you reran the tape, we'd end up with the same kind of outcomes, but. The role of humanity might have been played by an intelligent octopus or a you know a dinosaur <laughs> or something like that. I don't know how much comfort that is from a Christian perspective. Um, but it's I think this book is worth reading because it really gives you an insight into some of the maybe quite disturbing philosophical con- consequences, implications of evolutionary ideas. Um and of I guess from a from a biblical perspective as well, you know, we would say we have a framework that maybe can offer a completely different view of the history of life, that can make sense of the the what Gould calls the exquisite loveliness of these Burgess Shale animals, because we believe there's a master craftsman yeah. who created them, who made them, and the remarkable preservation of these animals, the, the way in which they'd they show up abruptly in the fossil record in all of their diversity, you know, reminds us of the flood and its its ability to capture ecosystems um, and bury and preserve them in, in remarkable detail. So I think we've got a kind of an alternative explanatory framework, but I think the books are helpful in raising our awareness of evolutionary debates, but getting us thinking about some of these remarkable features of the fossil record as well. So that's my first book, All Wonderful right. Life. Wonderful Life by Stephen Jay Gould. Um, all right, so my first Todd. book, Onward and Upward. Um, I don't have a copy of my first book to show because it's kind of futile because it's been issued in hundreds of editions and hundreds of printings. And it is one of those books that you might think we wouldn't bother talking about because it's so obviously something you should have read, but it's William Paley's Natural Theology. And I wanted to put it on here because there's a lot of creationist admiration of of Paley today, I think. But when you actually read the book, uh, you find out that Paley is not, <laughs> I mean, he is not going to agree with creationists on a number of really, really critical, important issues. Um, and I think that's really, really ought to make us treat Paley with a bit more circumspection. Um, so for example, what you, well, before I get into what Paley is, let me set the stage for you so we can at least understand where Paley's coming from. So, so the scientific revolution comes along, it starts, kicks off in the mid 16th century. Um, most people probably associate it with uh, the, the fight over heliocentrism, uh, whether the sun should be viewed as the center of the solar system or whether it's the earth and everything orbits around the earth. Um, that's famously associated with Galileo in his fight and, and ultimately also with, with Isaac Newton and his 
formulation of the idea of gravity, which then explains how the orbits work and all that sort of thing. Um, but the, but at, at the heart of that is a much more interesting, much slower process of, of people deciding, you know, rather than just believing Ptolemy or Aristotle or, or Galen, these ancient Roman and, and Greek sources, maybe we ought to do our own observations and our own experiments. So that was part of what went on with the whole heliocentric revolution. And it was also going on in biology as well. This is something that most people don't really hear much about. But there was also a really strong push to stop taking ancient sources as correct about biology and start doing your own investigation. Now, of course, Paul, you might imagine that's going to create a bit of tension with Christians who want to take the Bible as the word of God, right? Mm. Because yes, yes, it, it's true. We should, we should be thinking carefully and critically about Aristotle and, and Ptolemy and all these ancient writers, Hippocrates and so forth. But do we really want to get into questioning the Bible itself? Um, now we could say, all right, Maybe we've interpreted things incorrectly, right? Maybe we've read things into the scripture that aren't really there, and maybe we've read things wrong. And that, I think, is a really important point. But at the same time, there, there, has, to be, there has to be some kind of tension there between, well, the Bible describes this, and I have done everything I can to make sure that I understand it correctly, and it does seem to be saying this. And yet, from science, I see something different, right? And so there's a tension, and that tension needs to be explored. But in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the scientific revolution, basically they decided, no, we're not going to take anybody's word for it anymore. And so if we find a place where the Bible seems to contradict what's in science, then it must be that the Bible is, is um, misinterpreted. Because the Bible is written in this weird, you know, prophetic language, and who knows what it means. And, but science is always right. You know, you can never, you never really have to doubt the conclusions of science. That's not reasonable. And we, of course, know now, after years of science, that's not true. But at the time, they said, no, 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 science is right. So the Bible then is relegated to this sort of secondary status. And what they thought was, if we do science objectively, objectively, without actually consulting the Bible, that what we're going to come up with is a science that supports the Bible. And so design, natural theology was that outcome of that thinking, that if we just go out and do our science and we don't worry about what the Bible says, that we're going to come up with a science that supports everything that the Bible says. And I think, you know, now in the beginning of the 21st century, that went spectacularly wrong um, <laughs> because we've invented all sorts of stories that are clearly not consistent with what the Bible has to say. So Paley comes into this, and he's sort of the, the culmination of this natural theology movement. And he's got this book that lists out all these beautiful designs in, in creation that are evidence of God's wisdom and his power and so forth. That are So he's using science here as an attempt to support 
the existence of God and, and, and the, the revelation of the Christian faith. But Paley is also very much a, um, a utilitarian. He thinks that the greatest fulfillment that any creature could have is happiness. And that by doing what God has given you to do, you will be happy. So he not only sees design in the, um, the beautiful contrivances. For recent examples, we would point to the bacterial flagellum or the, or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, he didn't know about that, of course. He would point to things like the, the structure of the skull of the woodpecker and so forth. And, uh, but he also saw design in the happiness of creatures. He, he imagined that birds are happily singing in the trees. Yay, tweet, tweet, tweet. And that bees buzzing around, they're very happy too, and flies and so forth. They're all, everything is happy because they're doing the things that God has designed them to do. And as a result of that, he sees death, physical death, as a necessity. That you literally could not be happy if you lived forever physically in your body. And you could not, and creatures could not be happy if they did not die. So he's got a very different perspective on physical death than what creationists have, um, which then makes me think, okay, how much, how seriously should I be taking this? Um, and so when Darwin comes along and Darwin's natural selection is in, is in, in part an attempt to explain the contrivances and the design of nature without resorting to a designer, right? It's basically an observation that, well, if, if they weren't so well-designed, they wouldn't be alive to talk about. So, of course, they're well-designed. They have to be. Um, that's essentially the, the logic behind it. So, yeah. So, you, so I, I, I have my ambivalence about Paley, and then I have my ambivalence about Darwin. And I think Darwin's kind of got a point in some respects, but I think he's got it wrong in other ways. But I'm certainly not a Paleyan natural theology, not natural theologian. I'm not, a, I'm not, not into mm. the Paleon natural theology. I do think there's parts of what Paley wants to argue that there's something important to be learned from that. Um, but there are other parts of it where I think, no, Paley, Paley's a product of his time and he's a utilitarian and, and I'm just, I'm just not there. <laughs> That's just not where I am. <laughs> and I'm reading the Bible saying, you know, the fall has a massive impact on creation. And some of these designs that we see today that we think, oh, this is so marvelous, such a marvelous design like the woodpecker skull, that's used to kill things. So that's probably not the way it was originally envisioned in the original benign creation. There was some other, there was some other function for these beautiful designs. And I just feel mm. like creationists ought to read it, right? Before you jump on the Paley mm. bandwagon and start squawking about the beauty of God's design and, and the examples of God's design in, in creation, we really ought to have a much more deep consideration of what that means and how that relates to the fall. And Paley is yeah. not going to help us there. So read yeah. Paley's Natural Theology to find out about that for yourself. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, um, time is racing by, and it I'm is. coming to, to to my second book. Um, my second book uh, is uh, Faith, Form, and Time uh, by Dr. Kurt Weiss, who I uh, mentioned when I was talking about uh, Stephen Gould, because 
uh, Kurt Wise uh, is a creationist, but he gained his PhD in paleontology studying under Gould at Harvard. And uh, his approach to origins and the history of life and the Earth could hardly be more different from <laughs> the viewpoint of his mentor. Um, Kurt has made all kinds of really important contributions to um, the development of the creationist model. He's a He's a very important figure in, in modern creationism. And Faith, Form and Time is, is essentially his attempt to explain what the Bible teaches and science confirms about creation and the age of the universe, in the words of the subtitle of the book. And I think it, it, it's an excellent summary and overview of, of the whole um, creation model. He, he kind of begins with... Uh, a consideration of the Bible and its relationship to science, and especially how the two can be integrated and synthesized in our, in our thinking. There's a, a discussion about um, the age of things, covering some of the complexities and um, limitations involved in, in scientific dating uh, methods. Uh, and then he kind of takes the reader through um, the whole of the early history of the Earth. Uh, beginning with Creation Week, uh, then he looks at the the world as it was before the fall, and then he deals with the fall and post-fall world and the flood, and then the post-flood world and Babel. So he kind of goes through essentially Genesis one to eleven, and uh, sort of tries to integrate the scientific and biblical data to reconstruct what those different epochs of of Earth history uh, would have been like, and. Um, he introduces some new terms, terms that were new to me. He talks about the Arfaxadian epoch, <laughs> yeah. um, which is his term for sort of the post-flood world, um, named after Arfaxad, who was uh, the son of Shem, who would have lived through much of that sort of period of, of history. Um, and one of the other things that I was really intrigued by in this book, it's a concept that Kurt talks about, which he calls intentional ambiguity. And I, I found this quite helpful, and I, I think maybe other, others would too. He argues that because God requires faith from us, he, doesn't pro he provides compelling evidence that he exists, that he's the creator, um, that he's been active in the, in the history of the world, but he doesn't go so far as to provide ultimate proof. Uh, that in other words, there's sufficient ambiguity built into the natural world, built into the creation, such that you know if a person is so motivated to come up with an explanation for origins and and the history of the world that doesn't include God, they can logically and reasonably infer a history that's basically erroneous. Now that's not to say they'll be able to explain everything well that there will be that there are always intriguing sort of evidences and i think kurt has referred to them sometimes as thorns in the saddle things that <laughs> make you uncomfortable that are kind of tell, telling you actually this is not the correct explanation but because god wants us to exercise faith in him he hasn't kind of made it so that we can logically come to no other no other conclusion I think that's a kind of a, that's an intriguing idea and one one you know that's worth kind of pondering and 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 thinking about. Um, 
one of the other features of the book that I really like are the breakout boxes that he's kind of scattered through the text, uh, where he deals with uh, all of the major categories of macroevolutionary evidences, homology, embryology, fossil order, transitional forms, and so on. And uh, he kind of explains how an evolutionary inter interpretation works and then gives a creationist interpretation as well. Um, and I, I, they're very brief, but I kind of almost feel that could be a book of its own. You know, it almost needs developing into a, into a whole book. Um, it, it was published back in 2002. So it's, you know, it's 20 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, so clearly some parts of the book, you know, are now a bit dated that there, that there are areas where a lot more recent work has been, has been done. But nevertheless, I, I think it's a really useful introduction if you're in, you know, if you're looking for a kind of an intelligent, thoughtful introduction to the whole of the creationist um, worldview, then I think Faith, Form and Time is an excellent book, especially for um, students. And there is uh, also uh, a, uh, a slimmer, shorter um, version of Faith, Form and Time called Something from Nothing, uh, which was co-written with Sheila Richardson. And uh, that was particularly written for sort of students about to go to college. Um, and uh, that's highly recommended as well. Now, I think both of these books are out of print, but you probably can pick them up in, you know, secondhand um, bookstores and they're well worth, well worth checking out. So that's my, um, that's my second book, Faith, right. Form and Time. Todd, Faith, Form and Time. what's your third book? Second book is one of my uh, favorites here. Your second um, book. Sorry, my, I said your third. Yeah. Personal <laughs> favorite here is Frank Marsh's Evolution, Creation, and Science. Um, this is the second edition. It was published in 1947. Uh, so it's, it's quite out of date and quite old. Uh, he's got a more recent version uh, edition called uh, Variation and Fixity in Nature. That was published in the 70s. Um, I first read this book when I was... Uh, just out of grad school. I just finished my PhD. I had heard about Frank Marsh, talked a lot about his thinking, read excerpts of his work, um, but I never really sat down and read through the whole book until I was in my first job as a postgraduate PhD, young scholar, and I was just stunned by it, astonished. I felt like Frank was really way ahead of his time. I don't agree with all of it, Obviously, um, it's 50 years out of date, so it's, well, it's now more like 70 years out of date. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think Frank's got it all right. Um, but it, he had such a, an astonishingly advanced and thoughtful approach to a lot of these questions of creation and biology. It is definitely addressed to both an evolutionary community who thinks that creationism is a certain thing and to fellow creationists who have conceptions about what creation must be based on ideas that really have nothing to do with what the Bible says. So Frank is basically trying to peel away centuries of, of medieval <laughs> misconceptions about biology and try to carve out a new vision of what creation biology might be like 
if we took the Bible seriously and we took the latest discoveries and findings of science seriously as well. What, how does that synthesize together as a single coherent vision of biology? Um, so I was deeply impressed by this book when I read it back in the day. And I always suggest, you know, if you're into biology and you're trying to understand creation, then read Frank Marsh. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's not going to be the best up-to-date biology, but he's got a lot of thoughtful ideas here that could serve as the, the kernels, the seeds of, of new fruitful thinking in, in creationist biology. So that's my second book. Okay, great. Okay, my next book, um, again, it's a book written by someone who's not a creationist. Um, uh, it's this book, The Nature of the Stratigraphical Record by Derek Ager. Uh, now, Derek Ager was uh, a leading geologist here in the UK. He was professor and head of the Department of Geology at Swansea University um, for many years. He was president of the Geologists Association uh, after he um, uh, became sort of Professor Emeritus. Uh, he's the author of a number of books, but I, I guess this one is probably, um, you know, one of his best known. Uh, it was published in 1973, um, but it's it's been reprinted since then. He in, in the preface, he calls it an ideas book. And that that is basically what it what it is. He intends it very obviously to be provocative, to provoke thinking, to provoke discussion. Uh, it's not a long read. Um, it, it's got a number of quite short chapters. It's not a long book. Um, and what he does basically is he um, he marshals a number of uh, geological observations and then formulates them into a series of propositions. Uh, about the uh, sedimentary rock record. Uh, so, for example, in chapter one, uh, which is um, the persistence of facies, he talks about the remarkable geographical extent of particular rock units uh, at particular levels in the geological column. So, for example, he starts with the Upper Cretaceous chalks, and he talks about how you can trace them across northwestern Europe and into the Middle East. And they occur also across parts of North America. And you can even find them in Australia. And he sort of is talking about how remarkable this is uh, by comparison with how sediments are deposited today. And he then kind of works backwards through the geological column. And he gives lots of other examples, Jurassic limestones and the coal measures and Carboniferous limestones and all this kind of stuff. And he, he draws all of these observations together and he comes up with this first proposition, which is kind of the punchline to his first chapter, which is that at certain times in Earth history, particular types of sedimentary environment were prevalent over vast areas of the Earth's surface. So that was chapter one. And then in subsequent chapters, he kind of does a similar thing. So uh, he makes pertinent sort of observations about some remarkable feature of the Earth's geology, and then he sort of formulates a, a thesis, a, prop a proposition. 
Uh, so in chapter three, um, he talks about how the sedimentary rock layers at any one location on the Earth's surface represent only a tiny fraction of um, geological time. Uh, and so most of the record must be made up of gap rather than record. Uh, that's that's another proposition. You know, the the, the sedimentary record is is mostly gaps. Um, you know, rather than rocks representing geological time. Uh, chapter four, he talks about evidences of rapid sedimentation, um, things like turbidites and boulder beds and hurricane deposits. And uh, he concludes that the sedimentary rocks were mostly the product of catastrophic processes that were not normal. They were, they were not processes like the kind of average uh, sort of thing that we see going on today. So what he's doing essentially in this book is he, he's sort of challenging the conventional sort of slow and gradual uniformitarian understanding of um, geology that had really been dominant in the science of geology from the days of um, James Hutton in the 1780s, Charles Lyell in the 1830s. And he says some quite provocative things. I mean, he says, for example, at one point that in the first half of the 19th century, the catastrophists were the better geologists. They were better than the uniformitarians. Uh, he says that um, the uniformitarians were the theoreticians, but the catastrophists were the careful field observers. They were actually looking at the rocks and reading the rocks um, literally. Uh, and uh, he, Ager basically became quite a prominent sort of leading figure within the movement that we call neo-catastrophism. So, uh, you know, he, he believed that the, the rare, the catastrophic event were the events, they were the events that had played the dominant role in, in Earth history. So it's it's not hard to see, I think, why creationists were interested <laughs> in this book. Why creationists yeah. read this and and uh, saw themes that were obviously very um, interesting to them. But we we do need to point out he was not um, a creationist, right. and in fact he was very unsympathetic to creationism. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, he was still wedded to a conventional geological time scale. You know, deep time. Um, when he published in 1993 a kind of follow-up volume, this one, The New Catastrophism, uh, where he kind of extends his ideas not just to the sedimentary rock record, but to the whole of, of uh, kind of geology, um, he very carefully, at the beginning of the book, distances himself from creationists, <laughs> who he calls um, Bible-oriented fanatics who are obsessed with myths like Noah's Flood. Ooh. And uh, he talks about how they have misused ideas that he had presented in his in his book. And he, he wants to make it clear, you know, anything I say in this book is, you know, is not to be, uh, you know, taken and misused by these these creationists. Um, nevertheless, I mean, despite that kind of disclaimer, which is kind of par for the course, isn't it? Um, I think there's a huge amount in Derek Ager's books, which you know it's really thought provoking um you know it's worth thinking about and of course as creationists again you know we we would say we have a we have a framework that can help us to make sense of many of the geological observations 
that um, Ager is drawing attention to um, in these books. So really worth reading if you want to sort of understand that sort of neo-catastrophist um, viewpoint. And I think there's a great deal of profit that we can draw from it. So that's that's my next book. Right. Nature of the Stratigraphical Record by Derek Ager. All right. What do you got next for us, Todd? All right. Next book. This one is, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think a lot of what we've mentioned so far are not your casual uh, nightstand reading. Um, even <laughs> even Kurt's general overview book, Faithful Woman Time, is pretty groundbreaking in his attempt to sort of create this whole picture of how things work, how science and faith works together, and the whole the whole big picture of everything. So I decided, you know, at least one of these books <laughs> here needs to be <laughs> chosen for everybody else, right? Maybe you're not interested in becoming the next greatest creation scholar, but you're kind of curious about to, to understand maybe more about, uh, you know, the issues and so forth. And so I chose this book, oh. The, New, the <laughs> okay. New Creationism by Paul Garner. Um, and yeah, yeah, I know you kind of expect we're going to, we're going to pat ourselves on the back um, <laughs> and recommend our own work. But I really do think if you're looking for something that's that's kind of basically readable, um, that that gives you a really understandable outline of what in the world these creationists are thinking, um, this would be the book to read. Um, and it's not, I, you know, I don't mean this disrespectfully, Paul, but I don't think that you're really trying to break new ground here. I really feel like this book is intended to just sort of summarize where we are, or where we were anyway. It's it's ten years old now. It was published in twenty twenty twelve, I think. Um, uh, two thousand and nine. Two thousand older than ten years. Oh, it's even more. Oh goodness! Somebody ought to update this then, shouldn't we? That's they, an interesting they idea. They should. Yes. Yeah. What a good idea. What a good idea. <laughs> um, so yeah, new creationism by Paul Garner. Uh, yeah, a lot of these issues. Yes, there are updates on some of these things, but a lot of the things are pretty much as they were back then. Um, and it will give you a pretty good understanding of what it is to be a creationist now, rather than just uh, a Whitcomb and Morris creationist from the 60s. So there you go, the right. new creationism. Yep. Okay, well, there we go. So the next book um, I thought I'd talk about um, is a creationist book that I found um, very helpful. And it's this one. It's oh, Grand yeah. Canyon Monument to Catastrophe. Uh, published by the Institute for Creation Research back in 1994. Um, and I guess it's not surprising that uh, a place as iconic as Grand Canyon has attracted a creationist book sort of devoted um, to it. Um, Grand Canyon, you know, is one of these places where millions of tourists go every year. Uh, it's a, a very dramatic erosion feature. It exposes... Um, uh, rocks spanning much of the geological column, about one billion years of Earth history in the conventional time scale. Um, it's been well studied. Um, it's The rocks are well exposed because obviously Arizona is hot and arid, and so it's not like the eastern US where the rocks are all covered up um, by vegetation. Um, so there are lots of reasons why you know geologists would, would pay attention to, to Grand Canyon. And Creationist uh, scientists have been no exception. So 
uh, back in the um, 70s and through the 80s, um, Grand Canyon began to become the focus of uh, some creationist research. Uh, field trips and bus tours were established by um, the Institute for Creation Research, and they produced a field guide um, to accompany those tours. And it was that field guide that eventually became the kind of um, the, the seed that became Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophe. Now, there had been some other um, creationist publications previously that dealt with Grand Canyon, um, notably this one. This is um, Canyon of Canyons by uh, a creation geologist called Clifford Burdick. Uh, that was published back in the mid 70s by the Bible Science Association. But you can see it's a very slim sort of volume. It's really just a kind of booklet. Um, so Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophe was really the first sort of major creationist work, you know, dedicated to, to Grand Canyon. Uh, the editor uh, and lead author was Dr. Steve Austin, who was with the ICR as a geologist at that time. Um, but there were contributions from a number of other authors i think about 13 other authors and uh, it gives a, a fantastic introduction to the canyon its geological structure um principles for how how to interpret rock strata as well as giving a creationist interpretation of um the rock layers of of grand canyon uh it also talks about how the grand canyon was eroded there's a, there's a chapter all about um different models for you know understanding how grand canyon itself was formed favoring uh, particularly the, this kind of breach dam model this lake spillover model um, that some of our listeners may have heard about um, there are chapters on radiometric dating of grand canyon rocks uh, there are also chapters on fossils on the biology of grand canyon um, climate anthropology all, all kinds of things it's a really kind of comprehensive sort of case study so i think it uh it gives a really nice sort of overview of of um how creationists think about a a very iconic geological site one of the things i particularly like um liked about this book are the illustrations there are some great illustrations and one of my favorites um i thought this was quite a groundbreaking illustration in its day it looks a terribly complicated diagram and you probably can't see it very well there uh, those who are viewing this on YouTube. But basically, this is a diagram showing um, the transgression of the floodwaters over the western United States and how the, um, the deepening water and the waning current energies deposited in order the Tapete sandstone and then the Bright Angel Shale and then the Muave limestone on top of the Great Unconformity. So you have this kind of fining upwards sequence of sediments this sort sequence and uh, there's this lovely sort of diagram giving a kind of a creationist model for how how those rocks were, were deposited so there's some really nice sort of figures and illustrations i think it's just essential reading if you want to understand you know how do creationists think about grand canyon how do they tackle a you know a case study of a a particular geological um locality and I think it made quite an impact. Um, one of the interesting things is that a few years ago, uh, there was a kind of old earth homage to 
Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophe that came out 2016, I think, called Grand Canyon Monument to an Ancient Earth. <laughs> so it has a very similar title. Um, uh, it looks quite a similar book in, in some ways. And I think that's just a kind of testament to how influential this book was, that um, a kind of old Earth version <laughs> of this was then uh, was then produced. Now, like several of the books that we've talked about, this this is a book that is now about 30 years old. And a huge amount of research um, has been done on Grand Canyon since this book came out. All of the Coconino sandstone research uh, by John Whitmore um, has been done since then. Uh, the rate team and all of the work they did on radiometric dating, um, that, that's been done since the book came out. Andrew Snelling's work on the folds, um, uh, Steve Austin recently documenting sort of lake shorelines, and yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on that um, you know didn't make it into the book because it's it's um, it's new research. So I, we're we're well overdue um, a, a revised edition of Grand Canyon Monument to Catastrophe. I think a revised edition would be fa a fantastic yeah. um, textbook and field guide so who knows maybe we'll get a revised edition sometime that's okay. a yeah that's a good choice uh it was hugely influential on me it was just it's one of those books 94 was just about the time i was starting my graduate school career and i just felt like that book really set the bar for me to understand what it was to be a good creationist researcher um so as yep. a personal influence that was that was massive in my life all right, my fourth book then. Um, this is this is another one by a not creationist author, um, which we'll talk about here in a second. But I feel like this is a and this is a book that creationists need to read and really grapple with to understand who we are and where we are in history. And it's not the only book we should be reading for that, but it's important. And it's uh, this is the second edition. This is the Creationists. Um, by Ron Numbers. I remember um, back when this was published in the early 90s, I would go to the bookstore in the mall. Some of you Americans might remember um, going to bookstores in the mall, B. Dalton and, and Walden and those kinds of stores. And there it was sitting on the shelf. So this is how unusual this was. This was very well placed. All right. So I would go check out the science and the nonfiction section, and there would be this book about the creationists, and I was fascinated by it. So I finally got a copy and read it. Utterly fascinating history of creationism, basically since, um, since Darwin. And it's not just uh, a summary of stuff that creationists were writing. Um, he, numbers conducted interviews with many of the most influential people in the creationist movement. Uh, numbers gathered um papers from them personal papers uh so he have he he got access to unwritten material he got access to um uh uh correspondence between various people and so that's all part of what this book is this is this is this is a really impressive historical volume discussing the whole 
history of creationism, where the movement came from, what the things were that they were reacting to, how important these issues were, and what finally gave rise to um, the modern creationist world. The last chapter in the book here, in the second edition, is about the ID movement. Now, so yeah, it's important, but you have to read it with a big grain of salt. And the reason is that Numbers was raised in a strict Seventh-day Adventist home. He is a, he, he was a Seventh-day Adventist. He went uh, through their, their educational system. He, um, <clears throat> after getting his PhD, he was, he was a professor at one of their schools and asked to write a biography of their leading prophetess, uh, Ellen G. White. So if you know anything about Adventists, Ellen G. White is the, is, the, is the person who had these visions and wrote them down in these books that sort of became the basis for um, uh, their church and their theology. Now, uh, in doing that, then um, Numbers did not write a, a sympathetic biography of Ellen White and, in fact, wrote a rather scathing um, expose uh, and broke with the church as a result of that. And that event was enormously influential on Numbers personally and his professional life. In fact, just this year, just a few months ago, uh, he passed away. And his obituary features this story of him falling out with the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a prominent part of his obituary. Um, so clearly, this event was massively, massively influential in the way he thinks. So his perspective here, his thesis in this book is that creationism is a, an Adventist. It's an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventism. And he's going to focus especially on Adventist creationist uh, George McCready Price um, Frank Marsh, which we've already mentioned, and Harold Clark, and their interactions and their attempts to get more more serious uh, perspectives on creation and science developed in the 20th century. Um, I don't think he's right about that. I don't think he's right about where creationism went after the end, after the publication of Origin of Species. He sort of sees creationism, young Earth creationism, as going extinct. I think it just goes off into the popular mindset of Protestant people rather than um, going completely extinct, as he seems to think. And then there are other people than Adventists working on um, creationist ideas. And I've read a lot of those books from the early 20th century, um, books written by people like um, Byron Nelson, Leander Kieser. T.B. Bishop and so forth that are putting forward um, summaries of creationist ideas that are not explicitly Seventh-day Adventist. So, yeah, read it with a grain of salt. Um, he definitely has this, this life-altering conflict with the Adventist church that, 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 that influences the way he reads history. Uh, but still, the history that he puts forward is is really important and you're not going to get 
the kind of stuff that's in here really in any other book. So this is kind of essential to really understanding where we've come from uh, as a movement and as a as an intellectual community. Yeah. All right. That's number four. What's your last book, Paul? Important book. Yeah. My last book is uh, this one. Um, it's a heavy book. Faith, Reason and Earth History um, by Leonard Brand and Art Chadwick. Um, Art Chadwick, of course, has been a guest on our podcast. I think we mentioned him at the beginning of yep. this um, program. Uh, both of the authors of this book are experienced research scientists. They've both made um, many contributions, not only to creationism, but also to the um, conventional scientific literature. Um, this book is a kind of college-level textbook, I would say, a university-level textbook. So it's not an easy, re- like you say, it's not not kind of bed bedtime reading, but um, but it is very very worthwhile reading. Um, this is actually the third edition. Um, there were two previous editions that, where Leonard Brand was the sole author. Um, Art Chadwick has kind of come on board as co-author for this third edition. Um, basically, this this book um, presents a kind of constructive paradigm for interpreting the biological and geological data concerning origins and earth history. Um, And and it also, I think, helps us to think about scientific methodology. There's a kind of great overview at the beginning. Maybe the first sort of fifth of the book is dedicated to um, thinking about the scientific method, um, the scientific um, process, the challenges of methodological naturalism and you know is there some other way that we can do good productive science um you know is creationism uh something that falls within the purview of science uh or is it anti-scientific you know all of those kinds of topics are, are kind of dealt with i think quite well um and then the bulk of the book is kind of an interpretation of the scientific and and um, you know, biological, geological data. Um, one interesting feature of the book is that the authors um, introduce this term interventionism in preference to creationism. And uh, they give a couple of reasons why they why they do that. The, the first one is that they say interventionism is a kind of more inclusive term. So much of what creationists think about actually isn't really about creation. It's about what happens subsequent to creation? It's about the fall and the flood and Babel and you know whatever. So they prefer this term interventionism. And also um, another reason is that the term creationist, creationism, has got very negative connotations for for lots of people, and uh, you know it's become associated with perhaps a particular political agenda or with a particular disparaging way of talking about. Um, non-creationists and so they want to avoid that they what they want to um sort of get away from some of those negative connotations and and take a serious deep dive into into actually looking at the data uh one of the things i found also particularly interesting in this book is that they have a chapter where they um they give the case for macroevolution they they kind of explain the evidence favoring macroevolutionary theory and they do a fantastic job. I, I, I think they, 
it's one of the clearest presentations of the case for evolution that you'll read anywhere. Right. Uh, and then they kind of follow it up with another chapter where they say, well, let's now go back and go over all of the same data, all of the same evidence, but interpret it from a creationist perspective. I think that's great because it really helps you to to kind of think critically, to think how scientists working within different um, explanatory frameworks might approach and explain the, the same data. So I, I, I th it's almost worth reading for, you know, those chapters alone, I think. Um, Overall, it's just an excellent um, textbook, um, well worth reading. I think that the care, the caution um, that they um, they bring to their analysis of the data is really commendable. Uh, they don't make wild, unsubstantiated claims. They they don't overstate their case. They're honest about where there are difficult questions and where there are problems. Uh, it's just a really useful resource to think. Uh, to think through how serious creationists, thoughtful, intelligent creationists who have experience in um, in scientific research uh, can approach, you know, the, the, the problem of origins. So highly recommended. It's one of the best creationist books uh, I, I, I know about. So, uh, oh, and the good the good thing is it's not only available in hard copy, which is really expensive, actually. If you if you go and look at it online, you can get the hard copy but it's not cheap, but there is a free um, digital download, uh, wow. which is great. So if you're a student and you want to get hold of a copy of this, you can get it free. You can get it on your digital device. Wow. And in the show notes, we will, we will include a link. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. We will have links to all of these books where you can find them. Um, yeah. We might even try to dig up some links to some uh, used book dealers who would have copies of, of the out of print stuff. Yeah. Yes, and I, I have to say, I think it's funny. I often find myself thinking more carefully about how to argue for evolution than many of my evolutionary uh, colleagues. Um, it's always been the case. It's very weird to me. Why do you think evolution is true? Well, uh, evolutionary by people who just assume that it's correct have a very hard time mm -hmm. giving you a good case for it. It takes a lot mm -hmm. of work to actually think through how that how that works. And if you're thinking through it critically, I find that it's much easier to produce that that good argument. Well, anyway. All right. Last book for me. Your last book. Yep. Last book of the entire show. I'm going to indulge a bit of vanity here, but I have good reasons. So hopefully uh, it won't be strictly vanity. But I'm going to suggest that you read my book, The Quest. Um. This was published five years ago in 2018, uh, and I wrote it in 2018. It was actually quite quick. Um, and you can see it's not a very big book, so if you're looking for a, a simple read for your Christmas break, this would be a good one. And I think it's important because it's not, it's not strictly for creationism. I mean, it sort of gives you an example of... of thinking about creationism but it's not written i didn't write it sit down and write it thinking i'm going to explain the creation model and why you should believe the creation model and so forth it's more of a book about how to be a responsible careful scholar in the face of what appears to be contradictory evidence to what you think the bible is telling you um, and i think that's relevant to anyone and frankly i think it's relevant to us personally 
the more I the more I think about and the more I study creation and the way people think about creation, the more I realize this really is this is the story of everybody. <laughs> this is really what we're all about. We read in the Bible of God loving us and God's benevolence, but then we see something like, you know, a young person getting cancer and dying. And we think, where's what what good is that, God? Where is your goodness there? Or we see our our um the old the older people that we know um becoming, you know, more and more decrepit as they get older and, and maybe even losing their sense of their their sense of self and their memory. And we think, how is that how is that good, God, right? And 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 we keep, you know, we keep having these personal events in our lives that just seem to not fit easily with this notion that God cares about us and God has God has our best uh in mind and his will is the best that we can have in our lives. Um and I just feel like that's kind of the same story that we have in creation. We read in the Bible, you know, God created Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground and we look at science and it looks like here's all these fossils that have attributes of both what we think of as apes, which are animals, and what we understand to be human today. So how does that work, right? So it's this it's the same sort of tension. So I I I wrote that book to be deliberately different from anything else out there in creationism, to sort of explain how it is that I persist in my pursuit of creationist uh, scholarship and creationist research and why I do it. But it's also, I think, applicable to every other situation where you feel like God has let you down or God has disappointed you. It, it is about faith in the, in the, in face of difficult circumstances, faith in the face of hard things to reconcile, hard problems, I call them. Um, and so, yeah, I think you should read it. I think everybody should read it because it's not just about creation. And yes, I wrote it, but um, it, it really is. It really is different. It's really not yeah. your average creationist book. Um, no. So and I, I, I know Todd, Todd, you're, you know, Todd's kind of blowing his own horn here a bit, but um, I, yeah, I fully endorse that. I've I've read it. It's a very very helpful book. It's a great um, book, particularly for students. I've recommended it a lot. We have it on our book table here, and um, yeah, you 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 must read the quest. It's it's a really important book. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Well, lots of other things we could talk about. We've gone over a bit here. Sorry about that, everybody. We didn't intend this to be a jumbo episode, but uh, Christmas bonus. Christmas bonus. Right there, you go. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> We will definitely have to do this again. Uh, I I think my biggest struggle with this whole thing was um, was the books that I gained a lot of important thinking from, but that I would never recommend. <laughs> right? Yeah. Don't actually read that book, but it was really important to help me learn this piece of something or other. Uh, maybe we'll do an episode of not recommended reading and go through a couple of books <laughs> that we think this is really important, but don't, don't actually read this book. Um, yeah. So that's enough for now. I think, um, uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Don't forget 
um, as you're thinking about your, um, if you're thinking about your charitable giving for this year and you're thinking about your taxes for next year, um, gifts to core Academy are tax deductible. I assume you have some similar system in the UK there with biblical creation trust. We do. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so we do. do remember us? Uh, the, the expense of producing this podcast is, is considerable and we would very much appreciate your support. Uh, but otherwise, Merry Christmas to all. Yeah, happy Christmas, everybody, and we'll see you in the new year. We will. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Creation. For more information, visit us at letstalkcreation.org, where you'll find an archive of past episodes in all our show notes. If you'd like to leave a comment or make a suggestion, you can find us on all the major social media platforms. Let's Talk Creation is brought to you in the U.S. by Core Academy of Science and in the U.K. by Biblical Creation Trust. As a listener-supported ministry, we are grateful for all of your financial support. Find out how you can make a contribution at our website, letstalkcreation.org. Also remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Thanks, and see you next time.